I'm R.J. Lozada, and this is Making Contact. On today's episode, we bring you a special broadcast and present you two Making Contact Storytelling Fellows, Vincent Medina and Isabella Zizi. They're building upon the traditions and the work of their elders for themselves and the next generations. The Ohlone are the first peoples of the Bay Area, covering areas from the coastline along San Francisco to as far inland as Salinas Valley. After near eradication, the Ohlone were all but completely eliminated and enveloped within the colonizer's world. Their languages and cultures criminalized and swallowed up. It would be several generations before the Ohlone would be able to regenerate and reclaim fractions of land rightfully theirs. Making Contact Community Storytelling Fellow Vincent Medina is part of the current generation of Ohlone that are deeply invested in language and cultural revitalization. Whether paying homage to Coyote Hills Park in Fremont or teaching Chochenyo language courses at Mission San Jose, Vincent finds firm footing in his deep-running roots. Watin makruai taka aye kikne mak wetrish payan hitkanakshe ya watin. Makwetrish kikne maya. Our language almost vanished from the earth. In 1921, in the midst of this tragedy, an elderly woman living in the deep brown canyons of Sinol named Angela de los Colos proclaimed with defiance. As for me, I am not going to stop speaking. She, along with the also-aging Jose Guzman, worked frantically to record, speak, and protect Chochenyo, the language spoken in the East Bay since time immemorial, which was on the brink of death, the precipice of never being used again. What a world that must have been. I can only imagine but my heart begins to ache at the thought. These people, my elders, my heroes, they made a conscious decision to keep speaking, Chochenyo, and to fight against time as though in the defiance of gravity. They knew they were the only ones who could protect our language, and they lunged, ducked, and leapt over the hurdles of reality in order to keep the flicker of light from moving into ashes and darkness. Angela and Jose they weren't going out without a fight. Yellow parchment papers became full of frantic scribbles, an outpour of heartbreak, family histories, gossip, lore, loss and victories, and stories that stretch back to the very beginning of time, described with such an intimacy and an immediacy that they seemed to have happened yesterday. Tales of a time when giants roamed the East Bay when Coyote left his footprints embedded in the earth, when hills and spirits had emotions and proper names, when bodies of stone were defeated in the underworlds, 
and when songs were sung just about Mount Diablo and Mission Peak. Don't forget this, I picture them telling us. Don't give up on this. All right, now let's read these words together, okay? Just so we can get the pronunciation. So for day, truhi. Truhi. Now try again. Truhi. Truhi. Try it with your tongue a little bit further back in your throat. Truhi. Truhi. Hee, horse. Rakat. Rakat. Say it a little bit longer. Rakat. Rakat. My name is Gabriel Medina and I'm 13 years old. I've been learning around two years. It's like a secret language. I was in fourth grade and we were doing the mission project and we were learning about um, um, Native American Indians and I told my teacher that, that I was Native American and she said that I wasn't because I didn't look Native American and she knows what a Native American looks like. It's her, it's her opinion, I know that I am though. I realized just the sounds of the language were something incredible on its own. Being able to connect those old sounds to places here in the East Bay, you could hear the land in the language itself. You know, wherever you're at here in this place, you can often just see like those, those drops and rises and falls that make the Bay Area what it is, and that's so embedded within our language. It helped me connect in a way to my ancestors that, that just the words strictly on their own might not. There's context that's there. It tells people who are related. It tells the conditions that people had to go through. It tells the experiences that people had and how people consistently survived and adapted to the changes around them and kept intact what they could in order to keep their culture strong and alive. And when I would read that and connect that with the words, connect that with living in my land and the fact that Gabriel and myself, you know, two brothers, we, we both were born in our traditional village we're meant to be in our homeland. We're meant to be speaking this language. Our elders, they're, they're our guiding forces in many ways. They, they are linked to the old world that our ancestors lived in. When you, when you go to the language, because I know that you've been to one of the language classes that we had here. When you, when you, when you use some of the Chochenyo words, how does, how does it make you feel? When you use them. Oh, I, I feel that I'm not saying them properly. <laughs> <laughs> Surpri you know what? Surprisingly, and I, I talked about this um, with one of the professors that I have at, um, at UC Berkeley that I work with. And out of everybody, when, when we were having that, that class that first time, you got the pronunciation the closest to the way that I hear the old people say it in the, in the recordings. Oh, really? And it was because I think that you probably heard stuff growing up so somewhere back there in your mind, it's still there. But when you would get the sounds, there's a sounds that I can't get when I, when I pronounce things that you... Well, Aunt Dottie, in many ways, she's like the matriarch of our family. It must be because you heard it growing up. Probably so. Yeah. You know, some words stick and some words don't. <laughs> and some words you can't get them out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, as hard as you try. She's a tough lady. She's a strong lady. And she's always... She's always been somebody who's carried culture forward for us. She's always, in, throughout her life, found ways to protect our identity. And she's always found ways to make sure that those who are around are proud to be Ohlone. In the 1960s, Aunt Dottie was, was the one who led our cemetery being saved near Mission San Jose. 
Well, the only, the only person that I ever heard speak the language would be Uncle Dadio. Mm -hmm. And there were some other uh, family members that came from Livermore that also spoke the language. But uh, to say that I ever remembered what they said, you know, I couldn't repeat it because I don't know the language. She listened to the old-timers who lived on the old Sonora Rancheria and listened to them speak the language, listened to them tell the old stories that stretch back to the very beginning. Proud of, the, of yourself that has uh, taken it, you've taken this upon yourself to be able to teach the younger people the language, which is something that we never had, you know, only bits and pieces now and then, but nothing that ever stuck to us because we were too busy with other thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand. You know. Kathy, she, she's a really unique person because she's able to, to know a whole lot about the old ways. And Kathy also has a lot of insight about my great-grandmother, Mary Archuleta, who for a brief time while she was in college, she lived with her in the 1970s. When I spoke with Kathy, Kathy was telling me that she could remember hearing our language spoken all the way into the 1950s. She could remember her mother, Maggie Peanuts, and my great-grandmother standing around and she could hear the language. I just remember thinking to myself how much pride and how much and how excited I felt to know that my great-grandmother, somebody who held me in her arms, that she might have been a speaker of our language in her younger years. There we go. Okay, so um, so basically I just wanted to ask you a few questions just about about Nana and especially what she was like um, with in your in your younger years when you were visiting when you lived with her. I one thing I always wondered about especially with with Nana because I know that she spent time um, in the orphanage at the mission and I know that her mom, Victoria Marine, passed away um, when she was very young over in Sinol. And, and the stories that I hear from my grandma about this was that things got really hard when she entered the orphanage where she was separated from her sister, Flora. And um, there was obviously some, some really rough things that happened. But I wondered, especially because when I was a kid, Nana was always so proud to be Indian. She was always so proud about who she was, and she would always tell us, you know, um, that, that we're Ohlone. And I wonder how, just how, how she was able to carry on all of that pride in her culture, even with the things that she had to go through that were painful. And She was a lot like my grandmother, Aralinda. <clears throat> the both of them were in uh, Maggie Juarez and Pete Juarez's house. They were living with them, okay? Evidently, they must have, my uh, great-great-aunt, I guess she would be my great-great-aunt, uh, Maggie Peanuts. I get what they called her Peanuts, but it was Maggie Juarez. She's the one that took them, I believe, out of the orphanage. And I guess because your Nana was chosen and not the rest of them, that that may have caused, you know, the, the conflict or the bad feelings, you know. But they used to get called to, um, for the, the meat, the buffalo meat, okay. And when, every year when they would get called, she would make the calls to everybody, and we were one of the families. We'd all get together and we'd go to Ohlone uh, Park, 
and we would all celebrate. We'd all be dancing. Mike loved to dance. Your Nana made all of his regala, all of his clothing, okay? My sister Margaret is your Nana's godmother. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. so that's how close we were, you know? And your Nana would make things and give it to my sister because that was her her godchild. That's funny. Yeah. Did, um, with Nana, so you, you could remember that there was times though that, that the, the Aralinda and, um, and Maggie Peanuts, they would speak the language, right? Yeah. Can you kind of keep them guys quiet? There were birds that were very loud in the background. And I remember when I would go to see my great-grandmother as a child, there would be birds that would always um, be everywhere in her house. And the same birds were, were in Kathy's as well. Oh, glorious fighters, stubborn ancestors, people of defiance, people of wisdom, gravity breakers. Today, as a result of your refusal to surrender our language, we can speak the words yet again. Because of those scribbles on parchment paper, our land hears Chochenyo a second time. It's been inside of us all along. The words, they caress us like a loving grandmother's embrace. They comfort us like an old familiar song and they bring us dignity by connecting us to our ancestors. They connect us to the East Bay, Makruaitka, our home, Makperetka, our land, the place that we love, the place that those before us fought so hard to stay in, the place that we originate from. My elders, my heroes, you saved our language from ever being forgotten. And we will not relinquish Chochenyo, for it thrives in the footsteps of giants. Orshatruhi hemmenya kanakrakat vince medina ayanesem tahi making contact. In a moment, we'll look at how the biocultural diversity of an area depends on people connecting with their language and traditions, along with protecting their land, air, and water. But first, let me explain that Making Contact's community storytelling fellowships are a labor of love. Our producers work hard, hand-in-hand -hand with the fellows, and the learning goes both ways. The producers share their skills, and the fellows share their wisdom and life experiences. The fellowships are a 10-week paid immersion in the designing, recording, and writing of a radio piece. Fellows we've worked with range from a man who returned home after 31 years in prison to a woman working through the domestic abuse she suffered by reporting on the activism of younger women against violence. You can listen to all of our fellows' pieces on our website at radioproject.org. Our work at Making Contact is listener-supported, no corporate or government funding. We rely on you, so please go to our website to see the ways to help us continue the fellowships. 
Tell us what you think about these radio pieces. Drop us an email, makingcontact at radioproject.org. Or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Our next community storytelling fellow is an environmental and indigenous leader, Isabella Zizi. In this piece, Zizi talks about how the 2012 Chevron refinery fire in Richmond, California, sparked her involvement in indigenous-led environmental movements, showing us what it's like living next door to an oil refinery and how these towns have come together to protect the sacred systems of the planet. It's honestly bringing back uh, some memories. It might be triggering for me when I really explain how the day went. It was a really beautiful day. There was no clouds. The sky was just blue. The sun was up and shining. And it was beautiful enough for all of my family and a bunch of my neighbors to be outside just enjoying company. All of a sudden, I had noticed just this instance of darkness. And I had asked my mom, I was like, what is that? And so she turned around really quickly and she did this really big gasp. Like, you know, we all just didn't know what happened. And so she immediately said, that's Chevron that just exploded. At that moment, none of us knew what to do. You know, we just see this big roar of a black cloud just shoot straight up, straight up in the air. You know, with multiple big clouds following it. And, you know, we heard these booms, these really loud booms. I think it was like two or three of them. And we immediately started to tell everyone, get inside. 635 there was an explosion of some type at the Chevron refinery in Richmond we've had and you know just watching it from my windows just see the clouds just continue to cover the sky and the flares just shoot up and now people like me who remember that day I have to fear every day am I gonna see another explosion in my lifetime I really hope not You see, I grew up near the Chevron Richmond Refinery in California. In 2012, a ruptured pipe at the refinery caused the fire, sending black smoke into the surrounding areas. It took more than four hours to bring the fire under control. Richmond lies in what's known as the Refinery Corridor. There are five petroleum refineries along the north coast of the East Bay, less than 30 miles from each other. So those of us who live along this oil artery are all too familiar with the trends of having a petroleum processing plant as our neighbor. That was the biggest flare I have ever witnessed. That's Daniel Liddell. He lives in Benicia. That's in the refinery corridor too. 
Flaring is a process that typically burns off excess hydrocarbon gases or pressure. It was a really windy day and most of the most of the 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 smoke coming out of the refinery was blowing northeast away from uh, where most of the residents live, so we were very lucky. On May 5, 2017, the Valero refinery in Benicia started flaring at about 6.40 a.m. The EPA found toxic gases, such as hydrogen sulfide, peaking at more than 10 times the normal for the area. The Bay Area Air Quality Management District has launched an investigation, and the Valero refinery was issued four notices of violations. I met Daniel a few years ago at the refinery healing walks. These are walks led by Native Americans in prayer from one refinery town to the next. As we looked around our communities, many of us um, live in Richmond and other refinery towns, and we really started taking a bigger look at um, what it looked like, what it felt like, um, what the health impacts were and the emotional impacts were of living in refinery towns along the refinery corridor. Allison Ihara Brown is a member of the Mohawk and Seneca tribes. She's a longtime Richmond resident who also helped envision the refinery healing walks in 2014. Coming together both in terms of our indigenous values around the land and the water and the air and all of life being sacred and also the concrete experiences of having refineries that would explode and put out flares and emissions. It's been a long period of time for all of us, I think, of really struggling to have independent towns in the midst of a gigantic worldwide corporate industry that wields tremendous power and has tremendous resources to um, get their way. Inspired by the Tar Sands Healing Walk in Canada, Indigenous grandmothers started the refinery healing walks to walk for clean air, water, and soil. That's what inspired me to get involved. Now four years down the road, our mission to wholeheartedly connect with other community members who live in or around refinery towns like mine is stronger than ever, something Daniel and Allison relate to too. Growing up here, I never really felt, I felt very isolated living over here. And um, even though like we have our own share of problems, like I never, the refinery corridor healing walks, they were really the first, um, it was really the first time that I um, that I felt, you know, people were were bringing awareness to what was going on in my like my immediate surroundings, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, it's just really inspiring to be walking with uh, folks, you know, walk folks who are walking in commitment to the sacred system of life on our planet. It feels really different now. It feels like we have a whole movement of people that are united around wanting a healthy, vibrant future for our communities and for our children, um, where we can see that what we're facing, whether we're in Pittsburgh or Rodeo or Benicia or or Richmond, that, that what we're up against is very similar. And so I think there, there's a sense of community and community between cities and showing up at each other's struggles in city hall meetings or things like that. Um, that just feels different, I feel. I think we none of us feel as isolated as we did before, and we feel more powerful. Paul, take us away. Hey, 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 hey. 
Refinery Healing Walks connect the dots between five refinery towns, Pittsburgh, Martinez, Benicia, Rodeo, and Richmond. Every walk starts with a water ceremony, where water from different watersheds are gathered together in a pail. Then grandmothers from Idle No More SF Bay lead everyone in prayer. We had just walked past the north gate of the entrance to Shell Refinery here in Martinez. I am in the front with those who are carrying the head staff and the pail of water that we collected from different watersheds. And up here, this is the, the prayerful part where everyone is in contemplation and in prayer and in song. As you hear in the background, the drums and the rattles to keep our strong presence while we're walking. We are currently walking over the bridge and there are many walkers who are holding signs that read, walk for clean air, clean energy, water is life. There's about a hundred people here. Bikers and drivers passing by also shout and honk in support as we walk along. The walk continues on for a few more miles before we reach our final destination in Benicia. A group of smiling faces greet us, high-fiving us as we form our last circle. Then we end our day by creating envisioning squares. My name is Rich. and. Uh, yeah, we've, we've set these uh, squares up, squares of um, fabrics, so that as people have come off of the walk and uh, have in their mind uh, ideas about a world that could be without fossil fuels, with new kinds of energy, wind, solar, uh, you know, much more understanding and, and justice and all the other wonderful things that we stand for in this healing walk, mm -hmm. that they can express this in, in some artistic form in these squares. My name is Donovan. My vision for this walk is uh, empowering the youth and the people around me, the younger audience, like the kids here, um, being part of this movement where, you know, they're going to grow up and remember that they did something positive, not only for just for climate, but for themselves and feel like they've been a part of history. Sego, Patricia Tano, Ikok Peshni, Ichuwi, Yunyats. Patricia Sainosh is my name. Well, my vision is that we um, reimagine the world in the way that it was originally designed to be, and that our relationships reflect that, and our, our life ways respond to that inclination. We have the map, we have the instructions. So my vision is that we use them and follow them. People gonna rise like the water, we're gonna calm this crisis down. I hear the voice of my great-granddaughter singing, keep it in the ground. I envision a world where we are balanced with Mother Earth and use her natural resources rather than abuse or overuse them. I envision life to be free of pollution, imperialism, and destruction of humankind, and that we work together to build the solid platform of sustainable living. These intentions and drawings will be sewn together and turned into a beautiful quilt 
that will be displayed in community centers, libraries, and more. The hope is others will be inspired by them too. From Richmond, California, Huchin Ohlone Territory, I'm Isabella Zizi, Northern Cheyenne, Arikara, and Muscogee Creek, a Making Contact Community Storytelling Fellow. And that's it from Making Contact. If you're interested in learning more about the work both Vincent and Isabella are doing, or want to listen to other works produced by Making Contact Storytelling Fellows, you can visit us at radioproject.org. Lisa Rudman is our executive director. Marie Che, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez are our producers. Sabine Blazan is our audience engagement manager. And Vera Tykolsker is our development associate. And I'm your host, RJ Lozada. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>